name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've been going through some stuff at home and in my classroom for the last few days, getting ready for school to start at the end of the month. Some of the things that were in my classroom have now been banned because of the pandemic. Items of personal furniture, for, for instance. So I'm trying to figure out what needs to come home and what needs to stay at school. One of the items that is up for debate is a Fender acoustic guitar that I use sometimes for teaching. I have two classical guitar classes at school and on Fridays we do blues, rock, and I sometimes use this guitar for teaching. The guitar belonged to my great uncle who died a few years ago. And as such things go, as I debated what to do with the guitar, I started thinking about my uncle Hubert. He lived in Mobile, Alabama, and we used to see him a few times each year when we would head to the Gulf Coast for vacations or for quick seafood and sailing getaways. Uncle Hubert was born in 1926, and he was the youngest of nine children. My grandfather was maybe two or three children ahead of him in line. I don't remember exactly. The family had a farm and a house in the Stringtown area. But Uncle Hubert's father, my great-grandfather, spent most of each week working in Poplar Bluff. He was at work in downtown Poplar Bluff on May 9, 1927, when the great tornado ripped through the city. My great-grandfather was one of 83 people killed in that storm. My grandfather was almost five years old, and he used to say that he had only the vaguest memories of his father. Uncle Hubert, who was barely a year old when the tornado hit, had no memories of their father whatsoever. My great-grandmother had no choice but to sell the farm and the house they lived in and to move her family into town to live and work on property owned by her father. Her father owned most of the area that is now the intersection of highways 67 and 53 in the southern part of town. While he let my great-grandmother and her children live on her property, on his property, he treated them as if they were sharecroppers. They had to pay rent in kind, and he would routinely beat and abuse the children, particularly Hubert. As might be understandable given the environment he grew up in, Hubert became a habitual runaway and truant. They lived near the railroad switchyards in South Poplar Bluff, and so he would frequently jump on freight trains and ride them for miles out of town, saying he just wanted to know where they were going. He would see a train and he couldn't resist. He would say, I wonder where it's going to end up, and he would jump on board. On the rare occasions when he was home and in school, Hubert was a constant troublemaker. My grandfather told a story about some new shoes that Hubert got one time that had really noisy soles when he would, when he would walk. The soles would clack on the ground, and in school he would get up and go throw something away in the trash can, trash can or whatever, and he would take the longest route around the classroom so he could make as much noise as possible and then take the longest route back to his seat. So he was always in trouble and his grandfather's solution was to whip him harder each time he misbehaved. My grandfather once told me that one time their grandfather had even resorted to hanging Hubert as a punishment for some misbehavior. He had rigged up some sort of halter that he put around Hubert's chest or arms and he could hang Hubert from this in a non-lethal but highly painful way. When the United States entered World War II, Hubert joined the United States Naval Reserve. He was at the time underage. He was only 16 or 17 years old. So his mother had to sign the papers giving him permission to join. 
And she would later in life say that she willingly gave her permission because she knew it was dangerous, but she knew that as long as he was in the service, someone would always know where he was, which was better than they'd had before. Hubert went on to serve on troop transport ships in the Pacific, and in early 1945, a ship he was serving on was hit by a kamikaze in Lady Gulf. I tell you this story because in some ways, my Uncle Hubert's early life was a lot like that of Jacob, whom we heard about in today's Old Testament reading. Jacob came from a dysfunctional family. He had a twin brother named Esau, and their parents, Isaac and Rebekah, did not even try to hide the fact that they each had a favorite child. Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. And each parent would conspire with the son they loved against the other son and against the other parent. Rebekah even helped Jacob come up with a plan to deceive his father and to cheat his brother Esau out of the inheritance that should have come to him as the firstborn. This makes Esau so angry that he vows that he is going to kill his brother. So mom sends Jacob away to live with her brother Laban, thinking that the journey might be dangerous and he's going to live with strangers, but at least someone will know where he is and someone will be looking out for him. When Jacob is living with his uncle Laban, he falls in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel. And yes, Rachel is Jacob's cousin. Let's pause for a moment to consider how gross that is. Laban agrees to give Rachel to Jacob to marry, but only if Jacob were, agrees to work for him as an indentured servant for a period of seven years. And at the end of that time, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying not Rachel, but her older sister Leah. Jacob has to work seven more years to be able to marry Rachel. It is no surprise that today's reading is about Jacob wrestling. Jacob has been wrestling his entire life. He wrestled with his brother while they were still in their mother's womb. He wrestled with his father. He wrestled with his father-in-law. He even wrestles with himself because there are countless times in the Jacob story when Jacob seems not to know what to do next or what his purpose is in life. He just wanders around causing trouble. In the background to today's reading, Jacob and his wives and children have been living with Jacob's father-in-law, Laban. And for reasons that are really too complicated to get into right now, Jacob and Laban have a falling out. And they realize that they need to part ways or they're going to end up killing each other. So Jacob gathers up his wives and his children and all their property, and he sets out. One commentator I read said that it is important to note that this is not like Abraham setting out on a journey to a foreign land because God tells him, I have a purpose for you, and you need to go by faith into this country that I will show you. And it is not like Jesus turning his face toward Jerusalem because he knows that that is where God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. This is Jacob setting out for a foreign country because he has made someone so angry that it is not safe for him to stick around anymore. And he doesn't really have a plan. He knows he needs to leave, but he doesn't have a place to go because everywhere he has been, he has made enemies. So he decides to test the waters with his brother Esau. It has probably at this point been about 20 years since Jacob has seen or spoken to his brother. He sends some messengers to Esau and he tells them to ask basically if it's okay if Jacob brings his family and he settles near where Esau is. So the messengers go out 
they find Esau, and they come back to Jacob and they tell him, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you with 400 men. Now, I don't know about you, but if I hear that somebody's coming to meet me and he has 400 men with him, I don't think that's good news. Jacob assumes that Esau is coming to attack him and his family. So he divides his family up, thinking that if Esau attacks one group, then maybe the others can escape. So the family's all divided up around the country, and when night falls, Jacob is all alone. And that is when the story gets good. Because when night falls, Jacob has a mysterious encounter with a stranger. And the author of this passage is tantalizingly brief about this nighttime encounter. All the author says is that Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. We don't hear anything about who the man is or what he looks like or why they're wrestling. How did this start? Did this person just appear and pick a fight? Was there an argument? We don't hear anything about that. We do have a little bit of a clue as to what's going on because we know that the literature of the ancient Near East is filled with stories about human beings having sometimes violent encounters with divine beings. In some of these stories, the humans wrestle with angels or with demons or with gods that they meet while on a journey. There's a story from Egyptian folklore about the sun god in his transit through the sky or around the other side of the earth at nighttime meeting another god who attacks him and tries to prevent him from coming back and prevent the day from dawning again. These divine beings always show up when the humans are alone and it always happens at night. In fact, the story usually goes that the divine being must disappear by daytime. Almost like the legend of Sleepy Hollow and the headless horseman can't cross across the river. He has to fulfill his purpose before he gets to the water. So this story is probably a holdover from some ancient Hebrew folklore. And the ancients who heard this story probably understood that Jacob is wrestling either an angel sent by God or with God himself. One of the cool things about the Old Testament is that God in the Old Testament is a lot like a human being. When, we're, when Genesis says we're made in God's image, God has a body, God has a face, God has personality. So the ancients who heard this story might have understood that Jacob is indeed wrestling with the bodily form of God. Jacob himself seems to understand this because he refuses to let go. He's winning the fight and he refuses to let go until the mysterious opponent blesses him. He seems to realize that this man he's wrestling is somehow special or divine. One of the staples of the divine wrestling stories is, as I said, that the divine being must disappear by sunrise, and this story is no different. The man realizes that he's got to give in because the sun's about to rise, he's got to go away, so he gives in to Jacob's demand of a blessing. So the man asks Jacob's name. Jacob responds, my name is Jacob. The name Jacob, or Yaakov in Hebrew, means something like one who supplants, or one who disrupts things and turns things upside down. This is a great metaphor for Jacob's life. Throughout his life, he's been the one who steps in and messes things up. And then the man says, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans, and you have prevailed. Israel probably means something like one who draws power from God 
or a prince of God. When Jacob receives a new name, he is really receiving a new mission. He now has a purpose. He has a focus. He has wandered aimlessly, getting into scrapes with everyone he met. And now, having wrestled with God himself, Jacob has a new name, a new identity, and a new sense of confidence. The next morning, he goes out to meet his brother Esau, and the two are reconciled. And Jacob goes on to become a patriarch of the Hebrew people. I always imagined that my Uncle Hubert found his new sense of purpose after serving in the Navy. The Navy made sure that this habitual truant and runaway finished his high school studies. After the war, Hubert settled in Mobile, and one Friday evening he was on a bus with a bunch of other young people heading to a high school football game, and he met a cute young lady named Aldoris. They started chatting, and she asked Hubert his name, to which he responded, My name is Joe. They started dating, and it was several weeks before she found out that his name was not really Joe. When she asked him why he had lied about his name, he said, because who in their right mind would admit to having a name like Hubert Robertson? He'd taken on a new identity. A few months later, they were married. Under Aldoris's guidance, Hubert enrolled in and graduated from college and then from the University of Alabama Law School. He went on to practice law, serving as an Alabama circuit judge, and finally as an administrative federal administrative law judge in the Social Security Administration. I like to think that when my uncle met my Aunt Aldoris, he received a new name, Joe, and a new sense of purpose. And this is important. He'd also found someone who was as stubborn and as tenacious as he was, someone who wrestled with him and pushed him to fulfill his potential. Maybe that is part of what was going on with Jacob. Maybe when Jacob wrestled with God, it really meant that God was pushing him to live up to his moral potential. Maybe God was pushing Jacob to understand who he really was and how he fit into God's plan. When I was young and in Sunday school, we would always learn this story as an example of how God has a purpose for everyone's life. And I think that is absolutely correct in this story, but I think that it's crucial for us to remember what the purpose was. The next morning, after the man that Jacob's been wrestling with disappears, Jacob goes and meets his brother and is reconciled with his brother. In this case, the plan for Jacob's life was reconciliation. God's message to Jacob was stop fighting with everybody. Go meet your brother. Go be reconciled. Let love win. I think that the best paraphrase of this text is contained in a hymn written by Charles Wesley in 1742. It's called Wrestling Jacob, and it's number 638 in the Episcopal Hymnal. It goes like this. Come, O thou traveler unknown, whom still I hold but cannot see. My company before is gone, and I am left alone with thee. With thee all night I mean to stay and wrestle till the break of day. I need not tell thee who I am, my sin and misery declare. Thyself hast called me, called me by my name. Look on thy hands and read it there. But who, I ask thee, who art thou? Tell me thy name and tell me now. In vain thou strugglest to get free, I never will unloose my hold. Art thou the man that died for me? the secret of thy love unfold. 
Wrestling, I will not let thee go till I thy name, thy nature know. Tis love, tis love, thou diedst for me. I hear thy whisper in my heart. The morning breaks, the shadows flee. Pure, universal love thou art. To me, to all, thy mercies move. Thy nature and thy name is love. At the beginning of the hymn, Jacob is caught up thinking about his sin, his sadness, and his despair. And by the end, he's celebrating God's love. And even though he's been wounded in his hip, he is leaping for joy. Thy nature and thy name is love. Let love do its thing. When we stop trying to tangle with everyone we meet, love can win. When we stop worrying about who is on top and who has power and who is right and who is winning, love can do its work. I am absolutely convinced that the force that transformed my uncle's life was love. I never heard him use these words, but I would bet that for him the phrase, thy nature and thy name is love, not only perfectly describe God, but also perfectly describe my Aunt Aldoris. When he allowed himself to love and to be loved some, by someone, he was able to do great things. The best advice I ever received when I started teaching was love your students because this will lead to everything else. Every bit of classroom management, every bit of curriculum development is rooted in those three words, love your students. And the times that I forget this advice happen to be the times when I feel like I am aimless, that I have no sense of purpose or direction. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and that the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. I find that when I forget to love my neighbor, those are the times when I feel like I am wrestling with everybody. Those are the times when I pick fights on Facebook. Those are the times when I am grumpy and misanthropic. If we are going to wrestle with someone, let's wrestle with the concept of love. What does it mean to love our neighbors? What does it mean to love our enemies? I sometimes hear people say that loving someone includes pointing out when that person is going astray, and I don't think that it does. I think that loving someone means wrestling day in and day out with how I can best be supportive and sacramental to that person. The sacraments are moments where God breaks through into our lives. How can I be a sacrament to the person that I love? How can I be Christ for that person? Jacob's life was transformed when he stopped picking fights with the people around him and he started wrestling with God and with the concept of how to love as God loves. Now be sure that we are not going to get through that fight unscathed. Jacob does not walk away unmarked by his, wrestle with, by his encounter with God. His hip is wounded, out of place, and he goes away with a limp. No one comes out of life unscathed. One of the favorite thing, my favorite things about the Episcopal Church is that in our church dedication ceremonies, the first thing that happens is that the bishop goes to the front door of the church with his crozier, that's his staff, and he knocks on the front door of the church, and that causes, usually causes a nick in the, in the door. And so from the first moments of the dedication of a church, the church bears a wound. The church is marked and scathed and wounded from its very first moments. This last week, I was watching the funeral ceremonies of Congressman John Lewis on television. I remember the stories about when he marched with Martin Luther King in Selma, and they were attacked by uh, the police, and he had his skull fractured. 
he bore that wound for the rest of his life. Or I think about in the Gospel of Luke, when Simeon tells Mary in the temple that you love your son Jesus, but someday a spear is going to pierce your heart. You are not going to get through this uninjured. But the wounds we bear are the memorials spent of a of the memorials of a life spent in love. Tis love, tis love, thou diedst for me. I hear thy whisper in my heart. The morning breaks, the shadows flee. Pure, universal love thou art. To me, to all, thy mercies move. Thy nature and thy name is love. Amen. Amen.